Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Boogaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This week, excited to have back Carol Parrish Jameson. Professor Jameson, of course, is author of Chivalry in Westeros, The Knightly Code of A Song of Ice and Fire. And more recently, she's got an essay about Arya in a book titled You Win or You Die, Performances of Gender, Death, and Power in A Game of Thrones. A word about my conversation with Steve. Steve and I were covering Book of the Stranger, and our conversation went long. It just so happened that my conversation with Carol went long as well. And if I put it all together, I was over two hours. I even put some of Carol and I's conversation in the bird's eye view section in an attempt to make it all fit. But in the end, I thought, why am I trying to cut this short? So here's what I decided. I'm going to give you an excerpt of my conversation with Steve. And for those of you who download this podcast for the book, I think that that will suffice. For those of you who really want to hear Steve and I talk about an episode for over 30 minutes... I will include that in a bonus podcast in the coming days. It'll probably come out Monday. Also in that bonus pod, I will include an excerpt of my conversation with linguist David Peterson. David has his eyes on the House of the Dragon scripts. He's going to talk about his process of translating for those and his early impressions of those scripts. So you can look for that on Monday. For those of you who really like to hear the Stephen Anthony stuff, hey, come on over to Cocoons of Horror, where we cover Alien this week. Without further ado, here is medievalist Carol Parrish Jameson. Carol, I don't know about you, but I feel like maybe more than any other character, I found like revisiting Brand's chapters just really rewarding on reread. I completely agree. I was thinking, um, I've read uh, other people say about Bran how Martin really kind of um, toys with us. It's one of the way that he grabs readers from the beginning. Mm. We think that Bran is our hero, right? He's the young Arthur. He's got all the, the qualities to uh, to be the hero. Mm. And then early on, he has this tragedy happen and readers are like, what? Oh my goodness. You can't let that right. happen to him. Right. And then he has this just amazing arc you know as you go through the series of course we haven't seen it but yeah you know if things end up in the in the books the way that they do in the series then he does go from you know hero to hero but what a journey it is in between well and it's such a slow burn with him yeah it is i think especially in this first book i remember feeling like a little bit bored with his chapters (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you probably, you might have felt differently, but I felt a little like, ooh, no, let's get back to the action. But yeah. <laughs> now I feel, because I know what will happen with Bran, I feel like 
these chapters are so rewarding. And I think even more than that, I think that the chapters that go back to Winterfell, I feel like I'm I'm visiting an old friend. Yeah. Where in King's Landing or across the Narrow Sea or wherever, I kind of feel like those are really horrific and terrible places that are dangerous. And for some reason, Winterfell just feels nostalgic. It does. Winterfell um, Winterfell kind of feels like home, I guess, uh, for readers, mm-hmm. since maybe because things begin there and there's, you know, such... Um, you know, a, a happiness there at the beginning, at least right. in the narrative, some happiness at least. Uh, but yeah. yeah, coming back and looking at these chapters, um, yeah, there's so much foreshadowing, especially that, you know, things that you just had no way of knowing when you were reading it right. uh, through for the first time that now That's you realize right. how significant they are. Yeah, I was talking with my sister and she brought up the point that at least in this early book, Winterfell is almost a character in the book. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That place in particular is brought to life. Right. Um, I'm thinking of um, much later when uh, when Sansa makes the the snow village of Winterfell yeah. and the nostalgia that she has for it and that, right. that um, all of them have for it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, we're seeing, I think part of that is because we're seeing Winterfell for the most part through a child's eyes. Right. And then, of course, we know what's going to happen later, and it's it's not just a loss of a place, it's sort of a loss of some of our favorite characters' youth. Mm-hmm. It is, yeah. And you really see those struggles here with both Bran and Rob as they're put mm. in positions where they have to to mature more quickly than they, you know, than they oh, should yeah. have to. Yeah, for both of them, for sure. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and read a synopsis. Okay. And we, we can talk more about the chapter. Okay, so here's my synopsis. Bran watches as host after host approaches Winterfell because Rob is called his bannerman. Bran is keenly interested in the number of knights and when Rob will feast the lords and when the Northmen will march south. He feels especially broken as he compares his new life with what might have been with functioning legs. He talks over monsters and myth with Asha in the godswood. He observes Rob the Lord, as he calls him, win over hard men who tower over him in stature. Eventually, Rob's armies leave, and Rickon wails in protest, and Winterfell feels empty as a tomb, and Hodor says Hodor. (laughs) So, uh, Carol Jameson, what do you want to talk about? We could talk about a character, or a plot point, or a theme, or you and I could climb the ladder of chaos. I have a few themes I want to talk about, but I like to get there via the ladder of chaos. So let's go that way. Excellent. Yeah. What do you want to talk about first? (laughs) Um, Why don't we, let's get, since we're talking about, we uh, opened up talking about Bran. um, Can we start out talking a little bit more about, um, about Bran and his perspective? Absolutely. This chapter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I was listening to, I think, the last chapter you covered on Bran with uh, Professor Stephanie um, Hammer. Yeah, yeah. And she was um, talking about Martin's attention to disability. And that got me thinking. And the perspective that we get here of Bran is he's having to adjust to this new reality. The details are just just stunning to me in their realism. Bran, for example, has never seen the top of Master Lewin's head. 
<laughs> right. Right. He looks down. He's always these people he's always looked up to, but now mm-hmm. when he's on Hodor's back, he has this um this new perspective. And then on the other hand, I think when he's walking on Hodor's back to the godswood, he wants to reach down and pat his dog. Well, and he's he not do his it. dog, but yeah. yeah, but his wolf, but he can't reach. Right. Uh he can't reach. Um so just um that was one thing that that really struck me with this and how Bran is having to transition from this great dream of being a knight to, mm-hmm. you know, that can't happen anymore. And it's just really a heartbreaking chapter uh, in a yeah, lot of ways. Yeah, with Lewin especially, you kind of see the, him transitioning in, I guess, I guess their social roles are reversing in a way because mm-hmm. he always used to look up to Lewin. Mm-hmm. Because of course, Lewin knows everything, and Bran knows nothing, and he's a child. Right. And yet, now he's being asked to become the Lord of Winterfell. Right. Yeah. And he's going to have to listen to Lewin's advice in a different way. Mm-hmm. And so then, of course, then we have the literal looking down upon Lewin in this chapter. You know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, you know, he's challenging, yeah, challenging some of the things that, um, you know, Lewin, uh, for example, suggests that he could become a knight of the mind. And yeah. um, I think Bran is is uh, he, getting different kinds of information. Um, mm-hmm. We can you know, talk later maybe about uh, Asha. And, yeah. you know, he's, he's beginning to, um, I don't know, maybe question some of the things that Lewin has taught him. He says at one point, you know, no, I want to be magic. The black crow said I could fly. Right. Yeah. Well, that's right. And he's, I mean, that is the role of a Lord, you Mm -hmm. know, to take advice from maybe people who have lived longer or wiser than you. Right. And then measure the different kinds of advice. Mm -hmm. And from Lewin's perspective, you know, Asha's a woman. Right. And a wildling. Yeah. (laughs) She speaks, you know, she speaks in foolish ways like women and wildlings do. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And then, of course, from Asha's perspective, Lewin's a sweet summer child from the South. Who knows nothing. Yeah. Who knows nothing, <laughs> right? Yeah. And and how does Bran know which one of them is in the right? He really right. doesn't. Yeah, he really doesn't. And you could really, um, in this chapter, see him kind of measuring that, measuring the advice. But he's extremely concerned. Yeah. Asha has given him this advice about Rob. You know, no, mm-hmm. he's going the wrong direction. And yeah, he takes that um, information to Master Lewin, who doesn't, who's skeptical about it and ends up, you know, not saying anything to Rob. Right. But you really see him struggling yeah. here with, with this different information that he's getting and then with Absolutely. his own role in it all. Yeah. The other thing that I neglected to put in this synopsis is that this is when Rob receives Sansa's propaganda letter. Yes. <laughs> And so what is Bran supposed to do with this information? Mm-hmm. He's heard all kinds of rumors. He's heard that that they've killed Tyrion. They've heard, the, you know, four different rumors about what happened right. to his father. Yes. And then they get this letter from Sansa, and Rob is, like, incensed. <laughs> he is, you know? yeah. yeah that... He didn't mention Arya. <laughs> and I thought that right. what Bran says is really interesting. He says, well, she lost her wolf. She lost her wolf. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that, there are two things uh, there that uh, that I would like to talk about. And one is yeah. the role of the, of the wolves and how they um, 
their connection to uh, all of the Stark children. And the other is the way that news travels and who believes right. what in the world of Westeros. <laughs> right. So let's see, which do we do first? Uh, <laughs> let's talk about the news first, because I love, I, yeah. I want to talk about the the wolves too, but okay, there, it really does feel like there's multiple ways that you can receive news in this world, right? Right, yeah. Um, you know, I, I think we think of fake news as being kind of a modern thing, but clearly uh, it isn't, right? In this world, there are all kinds of sources for the mm. ways that uh, that news travels and for what's reality. What do you believe and what do you not believe? Right. And there's a sense of skepticism in Westeros so that old man stories are not to be believed. Right. Um, Asha's stories are tall tales that are that are not to be believed that, mm-hmm. you know, that the threat they think is right here right now, which seems logical. Right. It, it makes sense. Yeah. But then even within yeah, even the news that we're that we're receiving, you know, um, south of the of the wall, a lot of that news, these rumors that are flying are uh, are really amazing. Let me find that. Yeah, passage absolutely. Where... <laughs> I mean, I guess some of these stories that both Asha and Old Nan tell. Mm-hmm. They serve a certain kind of purpose. Like they, they'll teach you lessons like, you know, you don't, you know, you, you take care of people who are under your roof. You right. Know, things like that. Yeah. Sort of fables. Yeah. They, yeah. They teach you moral lessons, but they're mm-hmm. not necessarily to be trusted factually. Right. And even at one point, Rob is like, eh, I'm not sure about this Bolton guy. I just keep seeing yeah. his torture room. <laughs> And then Bran has to kind of console uh, Rob and says, he oh, does. that's just one of Old Nan's stories. That's one of Old Nan's stories. You don't have to worry about that. And then uh-huh. <laughs> it's interesting there how things turn out. Uh-huh. But yeah, so they're, you know, they're, they don't know what's going on, um, you know, in King's Landing. They don't know what's going on. All they have is this information from Sansa, who doesn't even mention um, uh, Arya, which That's is which right. really is is troubling to them. But uh, it's on page five seventy five. No one seemed to know for certain. Every traveler told a different tale, each more terrifying than the last. The heads of father's guardsmen were rotting on the walls of the Red Keep, impaled on spikes. King Robert was dead at father's hands. The Baratheons had laid siege on King's Landing. Lord Eddard had fled south with the king's wicked brother Rindley. Arya and Sansa had been murdered by the Hound. Mother had killed Tyrion the Imp and hung his body from the walls mm. of River Run. And it just goes uh, on and on. One wine-sodden tale-teller even claimed that Rhaegar Targaryen had returned from the dead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they become more and more uh, outlandish. And they're, and they're left just wondering, you know, what do we believe? And how much do you take of that? I mean, it's almost like three out of every four of these stories will have a kernel of truth to them. Right. Yeah. And you have to discern in, you know, you have to kind of read in between the lines. What makes sense Mm -hmm. of like what recent event could make sense of all of these stories? You know, Mm -hmm. what could have given rise to these four or five different Mm -hmm. stories that are kind of baked with propaganda and it's hard to tell the fact from the fiction but there's something behind these stories and it's actually kind of important that we discern mm-hmm. what it is that's behind there like yeah, what exactly. actually is happening with Ned <laughs> yeah there is some um yeah little kernel or you can see the origins at least for each one of these rumors and to me it's just part of of Martin's world building you know that this is the way that you know that um 
that rumors fly and spread, you know, and all these, you know, old man stories are just part of all part of the rich backdrop that he provides. Right. Um, but it's interesting just to see, number one, how those rumors spread and um, and how people make sense of them. And then also uh, the position that this puts Rob and Bran in as here they mm-hmm. are so isolated from the actual events themselves. Mm-hmm. Now, you can correct me in terms of. Um... Well, you can tell me how much this relates to your impression, but in sort of the ancient Roman world, there was a sense among the power elites that you could trust people of higher nobility, but that the people who are sort of the common unwashed masses, they were full of myths and rumors and lies, mm-hmm. and they're they're not really to be trusted. Mm-hmm. And we kind of see a little bit of that here, I think. Yeah. You know, don't don't believe this the, <laughs> the rumors of wildlings and rumors of men from you know. But when Sansa's letter comes in, it's almost like that should carry better weight. Right. At least, yeah. at least Rob treats it differently, right? He does. It's as if that, um, even though it doesn't answer questions, it's something authoritative that you know. It, when that letter comes at last. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's written, something that it's from a it's a, from right. a woman of nobility. Mm-hmm. Shouldn't be the same sort of rumor mill nonsense as the right. same stuff. Well, it's marked with with their with their seal. It's got her. It's in her own handwriting. Right. So it has this sense of um, authority about it. Yeah. But then he reads it, and it makes no sense to him at all. Right. Father's accused of treason. Right, and I think that when. Catelyn reads that same letter, she immediately thinks, oh, this these this is Sansa's hand. These mm-hmm. are Cersei's words. Right. Mm-hmm. But Rob is not quite there. His, you know, he's just angry. He is. He doesn't yes. see through the lie. He doesn't really have the wisdom to see through it. Right. Yeah, he doesn't. And I think he's so uh, irritated by the fact that she doesn't even mention <laughs> Aria, that that also, you know, discredits the letter a bit in his mind. Right. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about Asha, but let's talk about the wolves first. Okay, yeah. I'm interested in how much the wolves are extensions of uh, of these characters. And Bran's response to this letter, uh-huh. as we just said, was, well, she lost her wolf, as if this excuses anything in the letter that doesn't make sense or right. doesn't <laughs> ring truthful, uh, that, you know, that she's had this um, very traumatic event. But um, the connection between the wolves and um, the Stark children, I think, is a really interesting one that I don't know how much Martin really follows through with it, you know, as we go all the way through. Um, But I'm thinking here about, here Bran is feeling so helpless, right, with the new reality that he's facing. But there, uh, it's just mentioned in passing when he's going into the woods with Hodor and he calls Summer to him, that all of the knights and, you know, all of the men there, their horses bristle and, and it, you know, he, he doesn't do it to get power, but that, that is something that gives him a yeah, bit of Yeah, but it's a, a, yeah, it's a little thrill, for sure. It is. I think it is, yeah. Especially and if they're looking at him askance. You know, right, and they had been, and they've been, uh-huh. you know, whispering, you know, and sometimes not even whispering, saying disparaging things within earshot. And so this is, um, yeah, of course, he has a really um, special connection with, with the wolf that's more than just a sense of power, uh, more of an identity, as we see as the story evolves. 
Um, but here, yeah, that's something I think that helps him wield a bit of power. And then for Rob, I think it really, uh, his wolf really helps him oh, wield absolutely. power. He has to suddenly step into his father's shoes and exert all of this power. And yeah. I wonder how successful he would be without Grey Wind. <laughs> well, yeah, because it's that great scene where he basically tells this guy who's a, who looks like a giant, right? Right. Umber. He's I as think, tall as Hodor and he's <laughs> and twice wider. As, yes. <laughs> and he basically tells him, well, if you don't march with me, then on our way back up, we're going to hang you. We're going right. to hang you as a traitor. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, you know, this guy is not used to being spoken to like this, especially not from a boy of 14. And he unsheaths his sword, and if it were not for Grey Wind, that would have gone a mu- that would have been a much different exchange, right? Yeah, absolutely, it would have. I, I don't think he could have wielded the power that he, you know, he ends up. Um, you know, Umber respects him and follows him, yeah. but I don't think that could have happened. This reminds me a bit. Um, there are some medieval romances where a knight will end up with. I'm thinking of um, a 12th century romance um, called Evane, Knight with the Lion. <laughs> And in it, Yvain um, sort of befriends a lion and the lion sort of helps him out in his battle. And, you know, reading that, I always kind of think, well, that's not quite fair. <laughs> you know, of course, he's winning the battle. He has a lion yeah. Yeah. Uh, by his side. But I think the, the point is that it, it becomes an extension of the night and the quality of the night. And I think with Rob and Grey Wind that, uh, that that's what we see here, that this mm-hmm. the wolf is an extension of Rob as a leader. Uh, even though he's very young, um, it just sort of represents maybe his potential. I don't know, but it definitely yeah. helps him to establish himself. There's certainly something there, especially mm-hmm. with, you know, thinking back on how Bran reads uh, Sansa's situation. Right. Yeah. That that explains it all. She lost her wolf. Yeah. I mean, I can't help but read, when I read it now, I can't help but read it in two ways. One is that, you know, she's she's a little girl and she lost mm-hmm. her pet and she's grieving. Right. Right. Yeah. There's that. Like, let's mm-hmm. just give her a little bit. Of, give, give her, her a, a break. Of, yeah, <laughs> give her a break, Rob. She lost her wolf. Um, and, you know, the other way to read this, of course, literarily, is that mm-hmm. she's lost her connection. Right. To her true identity. She's no mm-hmm. longer a Stark of Winterfell. She's she's aligning with Lannisters. Yeah. yeah she's now a creature of the South mm-hmm. in the same mm-hmm. way that Catelyn's always been a creature of the South. Yeah. No Th- wolf. That wolf was what kind of what grounded her to Winterfell and without the wolf. Yeah. 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 She's lost. So that I, yeah, I, I think that that is very well done. And then of course you do get a sense with Bran that he's becoming more and more distant. Right. <laughs> He's distant from the life he, the boy he used to be. And although he's, you know, has this connection to Summer, you know, there are times when he's way up on Hodor's back and he can't quite reach the wolf. Right. I think that he, I think Martin does a great job of using those kinds of symbols to tell the story on a different level. Right. Yeah, I agree. I, I noticed, you know, the word before, you know, as Bran is thinking before yeah. I would have yeah. done this. And yeah, so so he definitely is uh, going through this this period of transition in this chapter, especially. And learning, I think, you know, just beginning to learn um, mm-hmm. what might be possible in the future. I've always kind of seen Jon Snow as this creature of duality. Mm hmm. 
you know, he's he's he presents as dual in so many ways, right? So he He does, yeah. He's sort of a he's an elite person of society and at the same time he's a bastard and it, he's mm-hmm. very much Ned's, you know, he's a Stark of Ned's blood, but at the same time he's a Targaryen and mm-hmm. he's both a man of the night's watch and a wildling. So he's got all yeah. these dual characteristics. He does. Yeah. And I never really thought of Rob that way, but this chapter, I kind of thought of Rob that way. Hmm. Um, I'm going to read this passage. I think he's um, from Brand's perspective. Rob has become this character with two different voices he has yeah you know he calls him rob the lord every now mm-hmm. and again <laughs> it's like yeah the the dual personality and sometimes yeah. he's rob the lord and sometimes right. he's still his his young his and brother not, not bad at it you not know not bad at all yeah even he's, despite the wolf even yes. you know he, he's still <laughs> these these really hardened men of winter coming to his his table and mm-hmm. somehow one after the other he wins them over right and he knows he knows the right things to say and that's right. yeah knows how to get him get them all that, to follow that's him. right and then right after that right after you think like this guy is a really good politician mm-hmm. you get this passage yet that very night his brother came to brand's bedchamber pale and shaken after the fires had burned low in the great hall i thought he was going to kill me robert confessed did you see the way he threw down hal like he was no bigger than rickon Gods, I was so scared. And the great John's not the worst of them, only the loudest. Lord Roos never says a word. He only looks at me, and all I can think of is that room that they have in the Dreadfort, where the Boltons hang the skins of their enemies. And then a little bit later on, he says, I wish Father was here. And you really get the sense that he's not dual in all of those ways, that John is a dual character. But his duality is really that he's right on the cusp between lordship and still being a child. Right. And he's not he's just not quite ready to to make the leap into lordship. But he has to. He's forced. He's forced to do so before he's ready. Yeah. Yeah. So much so that Bran will notice, oh, no, he's that's his Rob the Lord voice. I can't question Mm -hmm. him. Yeah. (laughs) But then when he comes to him after hours, he's like, oh, no, this is my brother and I have to Mm -hmm. console him. Right. Yeah. You could just feel that, you know, the tension that poor Rob must have uh, have gone through, you know, having to yeah. handle these men who were, you know, more experienced than he is, larger than he is, doubting his abilities. But I guess Ned Stark taught him well <laughs> I guess because so. he he covers it. Right. He manages to cover it up. And, you know, any fear that he has, he saves it. He saves it for that night when he goes and uh, and tells his brother. That's right. Yeah, yeah. He, he knows that that's politi- any vulnerability he has is a political weakness. And it so is. because you know, of the weakness, he has to conceal it and only reveal it to certain people. I wanted to ask you, it doesn't feel like this happens very often, but every now and again, you will see a boy king, right? Right. Or a boy lord. But usually those people are being, I don't know, used by much older Mm-hmm. real politics sort of folks right or at least there's rob a, really feels uh, yeah, like protector. he's on his own yeah he, yeah he doesn't have any kind of protector or anyone that he can really go to for uh for the kind of uh advice that he needs his I mean, father Lillian's there yeah. for sure right 
Yeah, but that's not the kind of advisor that I think he needs at this point because this right. is a military campaign that he's it's having. It's not to like Catelyn's there to advise him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, Theon is—he's kind of a grown-up at this point. But mm-hmm. I don't—I don't know if Rob really—I don't he, know. He really views him as sort of his <laughs> his older right. best bud, you know. Yeah, Rob seems to have a little more constraint <laughs> than than Theon as well. So I don't yeah. I can't really think of any historical analogs to this kind of situation where you've got a child a child king or or lord or something without any kind of overseer. Yeah, he has he has none. Yeah. He has none. Huh. I'm thinking about his uh do you think he's right to be marching uh, to the Riverlands because <laughs> Bran says it's half a lie. And Master Lewin says, you don't, you know, he, you don't have to go. He tries to advise Rob against it. Uh-huh. But Rob is dead set on it. And I think he's dead set on it because of this, um, this sense of honor. So I'm wondering, does he have to go? I think in his yeah. mind, he feels he does. And maybe as representative of Winterfell, you know, he is now the Lord of Winterfell and his right. father's dead. Maybe he does have to go. Well, I mean, I guess that there's... I guess there's two ways to look at this. I mean, I think that usually readers of this book will point out the foolishness of this. And I think that Rickon has the right of it. You know, Rickon, out of the mouth of babes, Mm -hmm. Rickon is basically (laughs) saying they're not going to come back. And Brand remembers, like, let's see, my grandfather, my uncle, my father, and all of the people that went with my father. They left and never came back. They never come back. Yeah. And then we, you know, fast forward, we know what happens to Rob. Right. So I think from one point of view, you could say, no, this is foolishness. Mm-hmm. I think from another point of view, and sometimes I try to force myself to think this way, I think in terms of like, is this not just, is this right for Rob's longevity? But is this, does this bring the most honor to the clan of Winterfell? Mm-hmm. And maybe if you look at it that way, you know, riding along a host to fight for the honor of the liege lord, it's not just the right thing to do. It's the only thing to do if you care yeah. about the legacy of these men of Winterfell. Right. And honor, we know, is what they value, you know, maybe foremost, you know, that more honor, than their you know, own lives. They value right. Honor, they add right? them. I'm thinking of how many times that. In reference to Ned, you know, that his honor is mentioned. Um, I think um, Jon Snow, someone tells Jon Snow about his father. Honor cost your father his life. Um, uh, I think at one point Ned is told, you wear your suit of armor. You wear your honor like a suit of of armor. Uh And and, it's just clear that. It weighs you down, right? Right. Yeah, it weighs you down. So honor is just the, their highest value for this particular you know, heroic code that they follow at all costs. That's right. And so and if you look at it that way, there's right. no choice. Rob's got to go. <laughs> and if you think about it, let's, let's contrast, for instance, someone like um, Ned and Roose Bolton, right? Mm-hmm. So Roose Bolton is formidable and people fear him. Yeah. But people do not love him. And right. And so when Ned's son calls the banners, they all flock, right? Mm-hmm. And that only happens if you have, like, a long history and connection and trust between families. Right, yeah. So if, let's say Rob plays it more like what Ruse, how Ruse plays it, 
you know, and he's sort of this <laughs> conniving mastermind behind mm-hmm. the walls of the Dreadfort. Yeah, people will probably fear you, but they will not love you. And I think you actually absolutely need that kind of love, you know, Lord Vassal relationship kind of love to really create these strong bonds between families. Right. Yeah. And I'm remembering uh, Rob says, my father would never send men off to die. Right. Um, that, you know, you would, you go along. That's the reason men follow him. Right. Uh, and I think uh, that Rob's, he, you know, he's continuing this lineage that people respect the Starks and, and they are that kind of leader. And yet at the same time, we have Bran remembering what happens to Sansa's wolf. Mm-hmm. You know, the wolf went south and only the bones came back. And the, yeah. the bones are, they're buried where the bones should be buried, right? And yet it's tragic. It's its the tragic story of what happens to these Starks when they go to the south. It is, yeah. Lose their lives <laughs> in the process over and over. I wondered why Rob isn't a point of view character. I mean, you can't have everyone be a point of view character. Um, right. But, it's, but I think we're able to, in this chapter especially, to get a lot of insight into him, even though he's not a point of view character. The, you know, the struggle that he's going through is he's trying to live up to family honor and take over this, uh, this you know, this very large role that his father is left to him. Mm-hmm. When all of the bannermen were flocking to Winterfell mm-hmm. and Bran is looking out with, I guess, something of a early telescope. You know, he calls it his, what does he call it, his <laughs> uh, bronze eye or something like that. Right, yeah. He's looking out and he's seeing all of the banners and the different sigils and how many mm-hmm. men and how many horsed men. I was wondering if you saw anything different than, you know, a casual reader might see, given your area of research. Yeah, it was interesting to me that for for Bran, his question is, how many knights? And Master Lewin tries to, you know, to kind of demystify the notion of knighthood, you know, that, you know, well, that's based on religion of the seven, that that all of these warriors, they're only what, maybe 300 that are technically knights, but they, they all have this, um, the same values, they're all, they're all worthy, and that basically it's a technicality, but then, but Bran, no, but how many knights? (laughs) Um, But I think that Martin is just is showing various kinds of codes of warrior codes that overlap. And I do think in this case, if you're looking at the men who are following Rob, who aren't technically knights, the code of honor that they follow is nonetheless a chivalric code where they value or should value honor, bravery, prowess, loyalty. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, so I, I don't I don't see a big distinction, you know, when Master right. Lewin is is trying to to demystify it, I guess, for Bran. But Bran desperately right. wants to be a knight. And so maybe he's trying to, I don't know, pacify Bran a little bit. Right. And I think he knows that Bran, this is something that Bran really wants. Mm-hmm. And yet it's it's sort of an impossibility for him at this point. It is. Yeah. Yeah. There is a religious difference that's important. Mm -hmm. Right. And Lewin is pointing that out. But then a little bit later, he says, you know, you might consider becoming a maester. Maesters are kind of like knights. Yeah, they're They're knights knights of the mind. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Bran's not buying it. (laughs) No, not interested. No, he's been interested in the fanfare. I mean, when he watches the um you know all of the the men uh, go off he, he, he there's this pang of regret 
I can't remember yeah. exactly his words, but that they would never, everyone is cheering. And uh, Brand thinks, well, they'll never cheer that way for me. So he That's dreamed right. of all of the, the glory and the fanfare. It's impressive as he's That's looking right. out and seeing, you know, all of these men come in with the heraldry. And, you know, it's impressive. It was his dream. You know, it's interesting at the at the very same time that that's happening, you know, Rob is leaving the Porticolis. Mm -hmm. He's got a host behind him. He's got Theon Greyjoy on one mm -hmm. side and then Great John on the other. And he's got his banner flying high and he's got mm -hmm. Grey Wind riding alongside his his big courser. Right. He really is he's he's being cheered as this great, I guess, would-be conqueror, right? Mhm. Mm Yes. At the very same time that that's happening, Bran is becoming the Lord of Winterfell. Mm -hmm. And you could say that a lot of these knights will never become lords of anything. Yes. Right? Yeah. This is very true. <laughs> uh, uh, the lord of a great house. This is actually mm -hmm. high, of higher and more important status it from is. a northerner's point of view, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yet Bran doesn't see what he has. He can only see what he'll never have. Right. right? Yeah. That he he had this dream, you know, from uh, from early on. And yeah, he doesn't appreciate he, yeah, the the position of just being Lord. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then he's beginning to have stirrings, you know, well, I want to fly. The, you know, the crow said I could fly. Right. So he's yeah. beginning to transition to some other uh, some other new dream. The religious element in this chapter is really important. And, it is. Yeah. I mean, we see it a few times. Like I laughed. Mm -hmm. I, I laughed when I saw Bran's first prayer. Bran was <laughs> praying for, you know, bring back my father, bring back Rob, and I suppose bring back Theon too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of like Theon's an half-hearted. <laughs> and then, you know, he goes to the Godswood to pray. Mm -hmm. You know, Horda goes off to uh, take a bath. Mm-hmm. He notices that Asha's in the Godswood. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to talk a bit about Asha and kind of what she tells Bran. Mm -hmm. In many ways, this is kind of his first non-Lewin lesson. He, you know, he, he's sort of learning from Lewin sort of what wisdom looks like at the Citadel. Mm -hmm. But he has not learned what wisdom looks like beyond the wall yet. And he's getting his first little taste in this conversation with Asha, who's really talking to him about the religion he ought to embrace. Not the religion that makes knights, mm -hmm. but the kinds of religion that cre can create the three-eyed crow. Right. So I thought that was a really interesting juxtaposition because Bran is sort of enamored with the religion of the South, even though he doesn't know to call it that. Right. Yeah. It comes with knighthood. Therefore. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so I thought it was really interesting. You know, she's saying, well, the gods are talking back to you. Don't they sound sad? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And she's teaching him to, to listen in this new way that I, it's like right. he's just a, a, a child kind of going through the motions of the prayer. Not that he doesn't mean it, but he doesn't see himself in communication, right. I think, you know, with the gods in a way that they would actually respond to him because he's, that's right. he's skeptical. Oh, that's just the rustling of the leaves. And then, no, listen, they're, you know hear if you listen you'll hear what they're saying mm -hmm. and so yeah he's uh she does introduce him to um to the this new possibility right and then he learns for the first time that you know north of the wall they're the only gods mm -hmm. and you know bran is thinking like well if that's true then 
maybe she knows something else that's true. Maybe what she says about giants or Mm -hmm. the White Walkers, maybe that's true, too. Like, he's trying to discern the fact from the fiction almost in the same way that he was trying to discern the rumors he heard. Right. Yes. Yeah. What he thought, you know, he'd heard about giants and things like that from old man stories. But Mm -hmm. now there's the possibility because here's someone who's been there, who's lived there, uh, who's an eyewitness where they're not just old man stories. Maybe there's Mm -hmm. some kind of truth. Yeah. And in this world, in this world, it's pretty clear that actually old Nan was right about the Dreadfort torture room. And actually, Asha was right about the monsters beyond the wall. Mm-hmm. And they're both dismissed because they're, you know, they're, they're telling old wives tales. In right. Mm-hmm. In Martin's world, at least, the stories told by women around the campfire are what you ought to really be listening to. Right. Yeah. Uh, which And what no one heeds and, <laughs> until too late. That's right. <laughs> Um, So the other thing about Asha that I wanted to bring up is that she Mm -hmm. reveals that she's being taken advantage of sexually. She does. Yeah. In the book here, it's the it's Gage the cook. Mm -hmm. And what she says is that, you know, he lets me have free time so I can come and pray in the God's wood. And in exchange, I just let him do whatever he likes. Right. Yeah. And she says it doesn't mean anything to me, but you really mm-hmm. do get the sense that she's a slave in so much that the only currency that she has is her body. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's very sad, isn't it? It's really sad. Yeah. And I think that I always kind of wondered about the show, a little show difference here. In the show, they have Theon sort of sexually harass her. And I always remember thinking they decided to do that to Theon's character in this they they kind of make him something of a predator right in this story mm-hmm. and it's not like beyond Theon's character I right just thought, yeah <laughs> where did they get that idea and i thought oh that's what that's what they did they mm-hmm. they took this unimportant character named gage right who doesn't show up in the show and they gave his storyline to Theon mm-hmm. to someone where you could it's yeah as you said it's not too much of a stretch to think that you know, we see Theon being something of a predator in other situations. Right. That's right. Yeah. And I think that, that probably tells us something more about Theon mm-hmm. that's probably helpful for that story arc. Right. And, of course, you already have way too many characters on the show already. You do, yes. <laughs> so. It had to be limited in some way. Um, for Asha, you know, this is, she is very spiritual, right? And this is a mm-hmm. way, this is the way that she's able to get in to have a bit of freedom at least and to get out into the woods and um you know pray to her gods yeah and yet at the same time she really presents as someone who's at least powerful in brand's eyes Mm -hmm. you know she may be the victim of this situation and she's in shackles Mm -hmm. but in brand's eyes she really does she's worth listening to and she speaks in a way that maester lewin doesn't speak Right. And she knows things that really interest him. Mm -hmm. She does. She possesses, I think, a a sense of wisdom. And I think, you know, we see her, too, as a a survivor that, you know, that she's she's smart. She's savvy. She knows how to to play the game in order to survive. And maybe that, you know, that wisdom just comes across. The other thing that she tells, she interesting, she tells Bran something about Mance Raider that we have not 
learned yet about oh, his right. character. Yeah, yeah. So he gives a little insights into his his motives. Mm-hmm. He says, you know, he calms off the king beyond the wall all he wants. Mm-hmm. I know that he's just a deserter from the Night's Watch. And on top of that, he may have a big army. He's not going to beat the White Walkers. And it's the first time that we kind of find out, oh, that's why he's amassing an army. Mm-hmm. He's trying yeah. to build a force as a hedge against the White Walkers. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely right. And here she has this cynicism about it. Well, I grew up here and I'm telling you that are there. I'm telling you that that's not going to work. Yeah. But we do. We get some motives and a different perspective You know, you know about who Mance is. And, you know, he's just another just another deserter. Right. And then the other thing I noted with what Asha tells Bran is that she says, you know, the gods can't see into the south. They've been cut down. All, yeah, all that, the heart yeah. trees have been cut down, mm-hmm. you know, south of here. And so, of course, you're, they can't come to your your father's help. They can't come to your brother's help. They haven't been able to help anyone in the south for a thousand years or more. And, and that a, really upsets Bran because, you yes. know, they, they don't have eyes. They can't see. If they can't see, how can they help? So a few um, notable introductions. In, well, actually, there's quite a few notable introductions in this chapter. We meet for the first time the Karstarks and the Kerwins and the Hornwoods and the Umbers. Specifically, we, the first time we hear the word Great John, mm-hmm. the Flints. And it's the first time we hear this title, Bran the Broken. And Bran right. actually gives himself this title. Um, he hears some other folk. I think it's the Tall Hearts who are gossiping about him. Yeah. And they say something along these lines. They say he's not just broken in body. He's broken in spirit, too, because he's too craven to kill himself. Mm-hmm. Terrible. Terrible. Just a horrible thing to say. <laughs> horrible thing for a child to overhear. Yeah. And at that point, you know, he's thinking, I don't want to be broken. I want to be a knight. Yeah. But at mm-hmm. the, a little bit later on, he kind of owns the title. Mm-hmm. He starts to think of himself as Bran the Broken. Mm-hmm. As if he's taking some kind of ownership or internalizing his condition, I suppose. And maybe it's that acceptance that he needs to move away from this dream that's not going to happen now. Yeah. And to be able to transition into, you know, to these new possibilities. That's right. But yeah, if you think there's Bran the Builder and all of the namesakes that, you know, that are in the Stark family. So, you know, Bran the Broken is, is certainly not a desirable one, but no. he does. He owns it. And then maybe he has to own it before he can move on from it. Right. Uh, right. But yeah, I'm thinking of other um, nobles that have unfortunate names. It's Charles the Simple. Um, William the <laughs> Conqueror was William the Bastard. Uh <laughs> Yeah, these are not good times. I mean, here's the thing. I guess a title like that uh, can give you ambition to do something that warrants a new title. Right, or live up to it. I mean, William's father was um, Robert the Devil. So <laughs> those are fun. I, I like to look at those. Oh, Commission podcasts are an awesome feature here at Bald Move that allows you, the individual listener, to decide what we talk about for a single podcast. The community loves it because it often leads to fun fan-favorite films and TV shows that we've overlooked getting the coverage they deserve. And we love it because we're constantly exposed to great stuff that's not even on our radar. The way it works is simple. You go to support.baldmove.com and you click on commissions. 
Then you pay the flat rate for the commission and tell us what two-ish hours of content you'd like us to make podcast on. Then we'll contact you for details, advanced feedback, and any dedications you'd like to make. Then we watch the thing, discuss the thing, turn it into a podcast, and pump it right into your ears. We get consistently great feedback on how much our commissioners love their podcast, and they make great gifts for the dedicated Bald Move fan in your life. And who knows, that dedicated fan could even be you. Treat yourself. Check out support.baldmove.com for more info. Again, a little bit different this week. This is an excerpt of Steve and I's longer conversation. I will include the full conversation in a bonus pod in the coming days. Here is comic Steve Osborne. Low-key, I don't think that Ramsey gets enough credit for his letter writing. (laughs) Like, he writes great letters. (laughs) Well, I mean, he certainly uh, conveys a thesis. And sometimes he'll include a little body part with the letter. Right. See here. Did we do anything with brand this episode or no brand this episode? Uh, Are we brand free? I feel like we're getting so brand heavy. I think we got zero brand this episode, which is fine. Right. We got OSHA. OSHA dead. Oh, OSHA's dead. Yeah, she was. She was. Um. She was kind of an important character for a while there. And then she was completely out of the picture. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, I kind of forgot about both her and Ricky Walnuts. Yeah. But then she came back and I thought, oh, this is interesting. I mean, uh, again, beyond beyond any book narrative mm-hmm. um, here. So I thought it'll be interesting to, interesting to see how she negotiates ramsey because ramsey is ramsey traffics and fear right right like that's his his superpower is that he will actually make you afraid just to be in the room with him and asha's like fearless right so she like is incapable of feeling fear i suppose unless you're like a white walker um so i thought oh this is an interesting pairing and then of course She's done so. Yeah, I figured that was going to be the case. She seemed like because it, it's a lot. I think I don't know. Even just in terms of uh, how much to deal with, um, it seemed like it would be a lot to have to navigate her return. Like I could see them where Ricky just becomes sort of a plot device at this point. And and well, as long as you have, I'm Asha, surprised. I was actually quite surprised that they killed her off. Um, so quickly because there are so many care. I don't know. I feel like they're killing off too many characters. Well, we we've invested in her a lot. She, we feel, um, I think we feel beholden to her because of what she's done to keep Bran and Ricky alive. Um, so as from an audience perspective, I could see the need to do her better than that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. Like once once you get her there, it's like I'm not sure what Ramsey's plan is. If he's going to torture, was going to torture them both? Was he? I mean, he's not going to not torture them, right? I mean, I think that's it. Wouldn't make any sense. It's his favorite thing, Steve. It, it is. It, so it wouldn't make any sense that there's not going to be some level of torture because well, one is just a commodity, 
and the other one was like an extra piece of baggage. So well, I don't and also that. I think there was part of him that was kind of like, oh, I'm gonna have to. I'm not scared of my dad, but he's gonna like. I'm gonna have to have this stupid conversation with my dad who doesn't understand how much I love torturing people, <laughs> and he's gonna give me like, you know, he's gonna just make me feel guilty about torturing people. And now he doesn't have any of that. Right. So, yeah, I'm curious to see where where this is all all headed. And it's funny because, like, uh, you, that's one thing I think the showrunners do a really good job of. And especially considering, like we talked about last time, about how the show began. They all get you so involved that you forget that there's White Walkers. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, right. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm Ramsey's always... letter is like... Yeah. All right. Oh gosh. Let's let's this go is get the worst thing that could worst thing that could possibly happen in the north. Carol, I sent you this article about medieval horses, mm-hmm. and it's just a you know it's a very brief popular science article, but it kind yeah. of it's making the case that based on these ar- archaeological digs, it looks as if what passed for a horse in medieval times wouldn't really qualify as more than a pony in our times. Mm-hmm. And it's, and the, the article goes on to say it's, it's hard to tell what horses were actually used in warfare just based on right. the, these digs, but it, it should give us pause when we think about, you know, act, actual knights on horseback, you know, riding mm-hmm. these, these, <laughs> these <laughs> giant, <laughs> creatures you know they were riding ponies basically yeah um i'm looking in my office i have the uh, the bayou tapestry that depicts uh, the norman conquest of 1066 and in those drawings i'm looking now and the horses um are quite small you know they're oh, uh, right? <laughs> they're quite small it looks like the knight's feet you know nearly um nearly hit the ground um i i did i asked um one of my colleagues who also works with medieval chivalry uh, dr grant gearhart what he thought about this um and he said that um probably it would vary a lot you know depending on first of all what kind of uh what time period uh and martin has sort of this hodgepodge middle ages right, right? sure uh, he can create what he wants but a lot would have to do maybe with armor um you know, it, uh, during the time of the Bayou Tapestry, there wasn't really plate armor yet. And so you would have mm. lighter armor. So maybe you could have a smaller horse that would be more agile. Mm. And then uh, I think, you know, the invention of stirrups would have changed the way warfare would go because one could fight with a lance. Um, so, yeah, in reality, uh, who knows? But but I'm thinking that maybe, you know, people were smaller, too. Right. If uh, I think if you look at old you know, right. armors that would, yeah, so um, maybe they were smaller. Yeah. Um, one other thought, though, is that the horse is so important, is such an extension of the night, you know, for the Starks, you know, they have the, the wolves, but horses also, I'm thinking in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, how much the pilgrims, yeah, the horse is a reflection of the pilgrim. Mm. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, you know, really important that, uh, that you have, you know, a good horse and a horse that's appropriate. I thought that was such a curious article. Yeah, say more about that. Tell me about the connection between the pilgrims and the horse. Yeah, so um, the knight's horse, it says uh, that his horse was good but not gay, meaning it's a, a good, steady war horse. But the knight is sort of very um, a serious knight, so it's not overly ornate. The clerk is riding on um, 
on his horse is skinny as a rake. It says lean as a rake. The plowman is on a mare. <laughs> so the horse, I think the um, the monk who's who's quite wealthy has it says a number of horses and greyhounds. So it's almost a status symbol in the way that cars are today. <laughs> Yes. Okay. <laughs> and all the trappings of knighthood, of course, were very expensive. So when we see, you know, when when Brand sees this procession, you know, leaving Winterfell, and then when he's watching them all come in, um, you know, they're, they're, it would be spectacular. The the horses in this case are all decked out and mm. and kind of an extension of the night. Yeah. Well, the other thing I was thinking is that and. Maybe I'm not thinking about this correctly, but I'm thinking if horses, sort of the rise of knighthood means that the that the importance of the horse rises as well, right? Mm-hmm. It does. Yeah. And if that's the case, maybe more attention to breeding is mm-hmm. given and maybe you're able to breed bigger horses over time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There definitely is a distinction, at least in literature, between a war horse and, you know, if there's a lady, she's usually on a palfrey with a smaller horse. And so, yeah, I I would have to pay some attention to that one. Yeah. 